good morning. It is good to meet together again in this way and be able to look into God's Word. And I just trust that uh, whether you are watching online or whether you're gathered with us at the church, uh, that this will be uh, a profitable morning for you and that we'll just have a good time in God's Word together, uh, as we already have had a good time singing together and praising Him. And this morning we're continuing in our series in Matthew. And um, we come to a turning point or a crisis point really in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's the same crisis point or the same turning point in the Gospels of Mark and Luke as well. And it's the turning point at which Jesus shows himself to the disciples as the Messiah. And some questions begin to get answered about what Jesus is doing and how he is doing it. And he begins at this point to talk about his own death and the implications of that. And this is the first time that Jesus refers to the church or the ecclesia. And so as we are living in the church age, and the church clearly is very important to us and has been historically for 2,000 years, this is a good text to slow down on and unpack exactly what Jesus says about the church. There's lots of questions being addressed in this very short text that we're going to look at. Maybe some questions that we've never really asked or thought of, like why is the church such a big deal anyway? Why is church church? Why has it been going on for so long? And maybe some questions we've never had an answer to, like what is the church? What is it built on? What is it built around? Who is building the church? Where is the church being built? How is the church being built? What is the nature of this thing? And we're going to get to those questions and more over the next couple of weeks. And what is fantastic about this text is that every answer that it gives is incredibly encouraging. I mean that in the sense that it answers these questions that form the very basis of understanding the mystery of God's interaction with us and His amazing grace towards us. As Christians, really as anybody, even if you're not a believer, understanding the basis of this text is literally like rolling out the blueprints of God's plans and being able to see what we are, are a part of. And who doesn't want to see those things? We do want to see those things and they are incredibly encouraging. And so today, after we read Matthew 16, 13 to 20, we're just going to consider who the builder of the church is, what is being built, and its foundation. And there will be more to come in the next week or two as well. Matthew 16, 13 to 20. I'm just going to pray uh, briefly before we open up God's word here. Father God, I just ask uh, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would illuminate this text, that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our spirits to what it is that you would teach us uh, about your church, about your son, about ourselves, and your plans for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 16, 13 to 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But do, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now just reading that, I'm just overwhelmed by how many things that are so important to us uh, to get out of this. But again, we're just going to dive in and we're going to get as far as we're going to get and then we'll just keep going in future weeks. So let's just look here. He says, the, the text begins with, He asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And so the very beginning of this text lays the foundation for understanding the text rightly. This is a text, or this is a scripture, this is a, a part of the Bible that is about identity. It's about the identity of Jesus first, and then secondly, our identity in him and with him. And so you may have noticed over the last few chapters that everywhere Jesus goes, he's been drawing these huge crowds as he's been teaching about himself and the kingdom of God. Thousands upon thousands of people following him, even out into the wilderness areas so that he can't get alone. But here in chapter 16, Jesus gets away from the Sea of Galilee region. He gets away from Peter's hometown. He gets away from his hometown. He gets away from where all the crowds are, and he gets some quiet time, just him and his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. He's as far north and east as you can get in Israel. He's in Roman-occupied territory, and so he's just got him and the disciples. And he asked them this important question. Who do all these people say that I am? And he uses his favorite title for himself, Son of Man. The most important question that we can ask ourselves or that we can ask the people that we love is this. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus? Because who we say Jesus is will determine everything about how we know him, how we follow him, and how we treasure him. So what are some of the answers that we can give to this question of who is Jesus? The disciples give a few here that were popular among the people that they were talking to. As they kind of circulated among the crowds as Jesus was teaching, they would hear people talking about Jesus and who he was and what was going on. So, so they had an idea of what the rumors were. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. What do they mean by that? Well, John the Baptist, he was the greatest prophet of their time, of our time, if I'm speaking in terms of the disciples or the people they're listening to. They're thinking that both Jesus and John preached repentance in the kingdom of God. They saw that John baptized Jesus, perhaps as the heir apparent to his ministry. And now that John is dead, maybe Jesus is the prophet following John. Makes sense. Sounds like Jesus is continuing on in the footsteps of John. Or some say maybe he's Elijah. The very last words of God's prophet Malachi before the 400 years of prophetic silence in Malachi 4.5 states that God would send Elijah the prophet before the day of the Lord comes to prevent the destruction of the land. And so the idea that Jesus is Elijah makes sense too. Maybe Jesus has come in the form or in the name or in the ministry of Elijah to return the people of God, sorry, to return the people to God before the Romans destroy Israel again. Sounds like Jesus might be Elijah. Or maybe he's like Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter one, God describes the ministry of Jeremiah this way. He says, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. 
See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. And so the people are thinking, this sounds a bit like Jesus too. He has the words of God in his mouth. We've never heard anybody teach the way he is. He's preaching a new kingdom. He seems to be here to break down and to destroy and to overthrow the Roman Empire or the kingdoms of this world. And he also seems to be destroying and overthrowing the systems of the Pharisees that have been dominant in Israel for so long. He, he's, he's uprooting the establishment and he's planting and he's building on this new teaching or this new way. So Jesus sounds like Jeremiah too. So, so these answers that the people are giving are pretty good answers on the surface. If you're just on the outside looking on with interest as one of the people in the crowds or as an onlooker, if you are even today like a sociologist or a historian or a political scientist that is just observing the phenomenon of Jesus and the church, this is who Jesus might appear to be to you. He's just a good man. He's just a wise teacher. He is just a social activist. But these answers fall short, of course, and they are all very clinical. They, they hold Jesus safely out at arm's length. And that's what most people want to do. They want to hold Jesus out at arm's length and speculate about what other people say about him. What does National Geographic say about Jesus? And who do they say that he is based on these archaeological digs that they're doing? Who does Time Magazine say that Jesus is with their inevitable annual Christmas edition uh, when Jesus is on the cover of the magazine and they uh, interview rabbis and historians to talk about the real Jesus? That's how we like a lot of people like to think about Jesus. They hold him away from themselves and observe. But we see here in the text that Jesus presses in on the disciples more personally. In verse 15, he says to them, but who do you say that I am. Remember, who we say Jesus is will determine everything about how we know him and how we follow him and how we treasure him. Who is Jesus to you? Is he a myth? Many people would say he never even existed, that he's just a fabrication of the disciples and the Apostle Paul. Or would you say that he's a historically wise man? There are other people who are maybe did a little bit more research, would admit that historically Jesus clearly existed. There's a little doubt about that, but that's all he was. He was just another man in history who, granted, was at the right time in the right place with the right teaching to spark a religious movement in retaliation against Rome. And, and that religious movement that he sparked simply got mythicized and people built him up to be more than he ever claimed to be. Or maybe you might say he is a prophet of God. But he's just another prophet along with all the other prophets, many that came before him and others that still came after him. Who do you say Jesus is? Well, Peter gives us the answer we're looking for in terms of the identity in Jesus and in terms of our understanding of the church, as we will see. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So having spent the last few months in the book of Matthew, I'm not going to expand on this too much about what Peter has said about the identity of Jesus. You can go back and listen to just about any other message that's come before this, uh, certainly from November through till February, and you will hear about the identity of Jesus as the Christ. 
he says, Peter says what we know is the right answer. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one who is literally anointed to be the king of Israel. He is the long promised and eternal king in the line of David whose reign will never end. He is the seed of Abraham of Eve and the promised son of Abraham who will be bruised by our enemy, who will be the sacrifice, who will be the lamb of God come to take upon himself the sin of the world. Jesus is the son of God and it is knowing Jesus personally as he truly is that determines everything about how we follow him and how we treasure him and how we identify with him. That is the answer that Peter gives. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is the first time that Jesus has shown, or God has shown, to the disciples that this really is who Jesus is. And there are some incredible implications of that. So having arrived there, what does that have to do with the church? Because this is a little mini-series about the church. Well, Jesus explains why his identity is so important to the church, and Peter's recognition of it is so important to the church. He starts to explain some really important things about that. Verse 17, Jesus answers him, answers Peter, and he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus asks the question, And of course, it's Peter who speaks up, and it's one of the rare occasions that he gets the right answer. Peter opens his mouth and doesn't put his foot in it. But don't worry, he'll get back to that really shortly, like literally in about 15 minutes. He's still called Simon at this point, the son of Jonah. So Simon bar Jonah or John. Jonah is just the Hebrew of John. But Jesus is going to give him a new name for the right answer that he gives. And it's an answer that he was given by God. As Jesus responds to Peter, he really begins to roll out the blueprints and to shed light on the plans of God that up until that time, the disciples didn't even really know existed. They had no idea about these plans that Jesus had with God and the Spirit. And these plans that form the foundation of everything the church has been and everything the church is to us and to the world today. So what do we learn from this answer of Jesus? First of all, again, put yourself in the, in the shoes of the disciples. Nobody has heard Jesus say any of these things before, and they never knew these things about Jesus. And that's hard for us because we know all of these things already, and we take so much of them for granted. Even just the reality of the church in the last 2,000 years of history, we just take for granted. We barely ask questions about it. But understand that what we learn here as Jesus gives this answer to the disciples is that This is the first time, or or first of all, we learn that there will be a church. That's the first thing that comes out of this. We, We have to understand that this is the first time Jesus has ever said the word ecclesia, which means gathering or assembly. Up until this point, he's never said ecclesia. He's never said, I'm going to create a gathering. I'm going to create an assembly. I'm going to create, and it's the word that we get for church. Ecclesia is a Greek term. It means a gathering of citizens that are called out to a purpose or called out to represent a citizenship. It had sort of a political connotation in a secular sense. Um, The Romans would use the word ecclesia to say something like if you called a town hall meeting uh, in order to decide if, say, Grass Lake Road should be repaved this year, 
And the answer is yes, Grass Lake Road should be repaved this year. But let's say, for sake of argument, you were to call a town meeting, you were to call people out to represent the citizenship, that gathering would be called an ecclesia. It would be a present local gathering of people who are called out to represent and to take action. That community of people would be an ecclesia. But here, people suddenly branches out from speaking as he has been about the kingdom of God that's been central to his teaching this whole time as we know very well from going through Matthew. He's been teaching on the present inbreaking kingdom of God that is coming into the world. And instead, when Peter gives this answer, instead of Jesus saying something about the kingdom of God, he says, I'm going to build an ecclesia. I'm going to build an assembly. I'm going to build a church. And he doesn't mention the kingdom of God. This is new. This is different. And it's wonderful because the church is the idea and the intention of Jesus. We understand from this that the church is Jesus' initiative. In other words, we learn here that Jesus did not come to merely save individual people, sort of picking us off one by one and then we sort of float along by ourselves as God goes on to find another person. But Jesus and God and the Spirit purposed or intended to build a church, an ecclesia. And we see this beautifully described to us by Paul when he says in Ephesians chapter 3, he says in 3, 8 to 10, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly, heavenly places. So, Paul says that the church, whatever it is exactly, because we don't really know yet from our text, but the church is totally God's idea. It is Jesus' intent when he came, he came to build a church. And Jesus is going to do that. And that church is going to reveal the manifold or the, or the multifaceted wisdom of God. It's going to reveal it, not just to the world, but to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. And so the first thing we learn from Jesus' answer is that he intends to build a church, that a church is a reality that should come into being from Jesus. And we've seen that it has happened. That's what happened in the last 2,000 years. The church has been being built. But not only that, not just that God planned from the beginning that there would be a church and that Jesus has come to establish a church, but that Jesus is the builder of the church. He says, I will build my church. It's my church and I'm building it. And this is a great relief and a great correction for many of us who are active in the church. That even though we may be laborers in the field or servants in the family of God, we are not the builders of the church. The church is Jesus's, and he's going to build it. He's the builder. And the Apostle Paul, referring to his church planting effort, says this in 1 Corinthians 3, 6-9. As he's going around with his helpers planting churches, Paul says this about his own efforts. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, 
God's building. So church building is not ultimately dependent on pastors or elders or missionaries or children's ministry directors or youth pastors. It is ultimately dependent on the power of the risen Christ keeping his promise that I will build my church. And this tells us that the church is not a natural organization. The church is by definition a supernatural organization. The building of the church must be a supernatural work or else what is built is not really a church but simply a human organization. And so as I said, this is a great relief and a great corrective because we understand that Jesus has promised to build his church. He is the one who is building it. We are workers in the field. We are a part of his building, but we are not the ones who are doing the building in the sense of being responsible for it. It's supernatural because Jesus is building it, and it's supernatural because it consists of people who have knowledge that only God can give them. This answer of Peter and Jesus' response also tells us what the foundational identity of the church is, and it rests on supernatural knowledge. The church is built on the recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. Let's just review the text again. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now verse 18 there, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, has historically been one of the most heavily debated verses of the New Testament followed very closely by verse 19 that follows right after it, and we won't be able to touch that until next week. But the question that verse 18 raises for us is, what is the rock that the church is built on? Is the rock Peter? He is the one who Jesus clearly names Petra or stone and says, I'm going to build my church on. Or is the rock the answer that Peter gave? Is the rock the recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, that confession, is that the rock? Or is the rock Jesus, where Jesus is referring to himself in the answer that Peter gave, saying, Peter, you've recognized me as the Messiah, and that's the rock that I'm building my church on myself. And without being too clever or disingenuous, I would suggest that the answer to that question, or those three questions, is yes. It is in some sense all of these answers being correct. But there's still one primary answer that must be correct or all the other answers are meaningless. So I think it is the main right answer. The rock on which Jesus is going to build the church is his own identity as the Messiah that is expressed in Peter's answer. He is the rock and the chief cornerstone of the church. Because if Jesus is not really the Messiah, if that truth is not the rock on which the church stands, then it doesn't really mean anything that Peter recognized it or confessed it. And it certainly doesn't matter that it was Peter specifically. So Peter's confession might be the rock, but it's only the rock if it really is true. And Peter might be the rock, but he's only the rock because of who Jesus is and that he's confessed it. And so all of those answers really depend on Jesus himself being the rock. If Jesus himself is the rock, then all the other answers start to fall into place. If Jesus is the rock, that means that the church is literally built on, or can be described as the community of people like Peter, who recognize the supernatural revelation from God that Jesus is the Messiah. 
right? The church is the people who confess Jesus as the Messiah. And it means also that Jesus was clearly right in naming Peter rock to mark this historical event and his participation in it. Jesus was right to rename Simon Petra or stone because he made the bedrock statement of the church that Jesus is the Messiah and declared that truth and all the implications of it. And that truth and all those implications will be the rock on which the church will stand for ages to come. It will be Peter in Acts chapter 2 after Christ is gone and the Spirit has come who will preach the first sermon in Jerusalem in which he simply restates this foundational truth. He says, this is Jesus whom you have crucified is the Lord and Christ. He is the Messiah of God. Acts chapter 2 verses, well the whole sermon is 14 to 36. And as Petra the rock restates the rock foundational statement that Jesus is the Messiah, 3,000 people are added to the church that day. Martin Luther says, all who agree with the confession of Peter are Peters themselves setting a sure foundation. And so we can say that the rock is Peter, sort of. The rock is the answer that Peter gave, the confession of Christ as the Messiah. And we can also say, most importantly, the rock is Christ the Messiah. And so it is Christ the Messiah who is the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation. It is the confession of Christ as the Messiah that is the rock and the foundation on which the church can stand. And it is Peter who really is the rock on which the church is built because he's the first to confess it, the first to preach it, and to establish the church in Jerusalem. But what does this mean for the church today? It means that we can identify with other Christians individually and with other local assemblies or other ecclesia that are called out of believers in our own community or in other cities or around the world. We can identify with them at the most basic level on the answer to this question. Do they recognize Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, and all that that identification and all that that identity implies? If you confess Jesus as Lord, as Peter has, if you have that revelation from God and that relationship given to you by the Spirit, if, in other words, you've received the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we are siblings in the family of God. We are brother and sister or brother and brother. And you can be a member of our assembly. You can be a part of our ecclesia. You can be a member of our church and belong to that gathering because we belong to that gathering that is called out of the world and called into Jesus Christ together. That's what this confession means and what it means to the church. It also means that if another church or another assembly confesses the same, then our assembly can call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ with that assembly. It means we can partner with Brian Plouffe and Bev Hicks and Harry Morgan because we know that they confess, we know what they confess, and we know what they preach. We know that they confess and that they preach the gospel, the Christhood or the messianic reality of Jesus. Now, we may disagree on some secondary or tertiary issues, but this statement of Peter's and the promise of Jesus tells us that we are ultimately on the same team if we believe these same things about Jesus. It's on this rock that we can build our agreement. It's on this rock that we can build fellowship. It's on this rock that we can stand together as churches in this community and in the world. But at the same time, it's a boundary that warns us of who is not part of our assembly and cannot be. 
It warns us what gatherings are not really churches but are merely human organizations because they do not confess Jesus as the Messiah, nor do they confess all that that identification implies. It tells us there is no foundation for us to build a relationship with them on or an association with them with because we're not confessing the same good news, we're not preaching the same gospel. They may be confessing something about Jesus, but they're not confessing ultimately what, Jesus, what Peter is or what Jesus has affirmed. And so here we will pause for sake of time just to allow this meal to digest a little bit. But we've begun to unpack the marvelous, joyful, thrilling realities of the church that Peter's confession and Christ's reply tell us about the church. What we've learned is that Jesus intends to build a church. He's not merely rescuing individuals, but he's creating a new assembly. And I really need to talk about that new assembly at some point. There just has so much meaning when we consider the assembly of God's people in the context of the Old Testament and the new assembly that Jesus is building. So we will get to that because I have to talk about that. Maybe that's next week. We've learned that. We've learned that the church is God's plan. It's not ours. That Jesus came in order to build a church. He intends for us to be gathered together in order to display his wisdom and grace. We've learned that Jesus himself is both the rock and foundation of the church and he is the builder of the church. Jesus is the chief cornerstone and also the architect. And he has promised that he will build his church. And that We've also learned that the church is being built out of people. It is the assembly or the ecclesia, the gathering together of people who confess Jesus Christ as the Messiah, who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. It's pretty amazing that decades later, after he makes this confession to Jesus, Peter writes in a letter to the churches. This is at the end of a long life of ministry. He writes in 1 Peter 2, 4-6, he says, as you come to him, think about how personal this is, as you come to him, as you come to Jesus, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion, that is in Jerusalem, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Those are just incredible words coming from Peter because he was the first to see. God showed Peter first that Jesus is the cornerstone, he's the rock. And the people that come to him, who are rejected by men, but that are counted precious by God, are living stones. And I am going to talk about this more next week, because this is about the assembly and God building his church with us. Jesus building his church with us. And anyway, we've got to talk about that. But it's incredible that, that Peter says this so late in his ministry. After that day in Jerusalem, when 3,000 people were added to the church after he confessed Jesus as Messiah again, after years of seeing what grew out of a tiny band of a dozen or so believers in the Messiah, he saw tens of thousands of Christ followers, hundreds upon hundreds of churches planted in cities all across the Roman Empire and beyond. He saw the spread of the gospel setting people free from their sin. 
he saw the monumental shift in history like nothing that had ever come before. Peter saw with his own eyes what God said that he had planned and promised to do in Jesus and what Jesus told him he was going to do. Peter saw it fulfilled with his own eyes. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And Peter saw that church being built. The cornerstone was laid. Jesus was keeping his promise. Jesus is keeping his promise to build his church. He's calling people out to a new ecclesia, a new assembly, and he's building them up stone by stone into a new temple that Christ himself inhabits. Now, I know I said in my little teaser video earlier in the week that I would talk about COVID and some of the other opposition to the building of the church today. Because we look around and we wonder, is Jesus building his church? Is this promise still true? It looks like the church is getting dismantled. It doesn't look like the church is getting built. But next Sunday, we're going to consider where Jesus is building his church. He's building it in enemy-occupied territory. And we're going to consider how he's building his church. But for now, so we will get that. We'll, we'll get to COVID and all the opposition to the church and other things next week. But for now, for this week, the most important question we can be asking ourselves is this. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Can you confess with Peter that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised one of God, that he is the son of God, that he is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world, that he's the lamb that has come to take away your sins? This is the most important question. Who is Jesus to you? Do you understand that Jesus intended for you from before the foundation of the world to rescue you from your sin? And that if you ask God, he can show you this Jesus and you can have a relationship with him. You can repent of your sins like those 3,000 did in Jerusalem that day. You can confess your weakness. You can admit your rejection and your rebellion against God all this time. You are precious. You may be rejected by men, but you are precious in the sight of God. And he wants to make you a stone in his temple. He wants to build his church with you. So I ask you, who is Jesus to you? Confess him as Lord. Turn away from, repent. That's all repent means. Repent just means turn your back on. Walk away from that old rebellious life and walk into the new life that Jesus has intended for you. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks for your word this morning. Thank you that it is so precious to us, that you have not left us as orphans, but you have sent your spirit and you have given us your church, that it's your plan from the beginning and it will withstand and be your plan till the very end. Father, open our eyes to the beauty of your Son, to the beauty of the church that he's building, the beauty of each other in your church. Lord, give us the strength and the courage and the knowledge to be living stones and living sacrifices in this beautiful, supernatural body of Christ that you are building. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.